Good morning, Seacoast. Thanks for being here with us this morning. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. I uh, just got back late last night, actually, from Boston. I spent the week at a conference uh, in Boston, and the conference was uh, it was a conference, a gathering of Christian leaders, uh, business leaders, pastors, educators, um, all kind of together and wrestling with some of the more uh, relevant topics that are that are facing our nation today, and it was really great to be in this presence of just really some great uh, intellectual kind of conversations of how can we be people who hold to our theological convictions yet to approach our world with a new commitment to hospitality and grace and love in a way that really represents Christ. And so I want to thank you for allowing me to be there and for sending me. You may not know you sent me, but thank you anyway. Um, it, it was really uh, an enjoyable time. We had everything from uh, the uh, captain of the police force in, uh, from Ferguson, Missouri was there to dialogue with us. Uh, we kind of wrestled with some of the issues of same-sex marriage and how, how can the church respond in a better way than we have historically. Um, and, and just kind of a whole bunch of immigration. Uh, we, we dealt with a lot of issues. So it was a week um, of, that started at about 7 in the morning from each day and ended about midnight. Um, and there are conversations each day uh, just kind of constantly. So if I start babbling... Just, you know, just smile and nod and go with it, all right? Because so, that's a little bit how I feel, but it was really a wonderful time. Um, and I do want to also just, one of the things that we are doing beginning next week, I'm really proud of our, our, our group here, uh, Seacoast U, that is offering next week at 10.45 during the next service. They're going to be having one of these dialogues that we talked about, and uh, about race in America, and uh, William and Roshana Jackson will be leading that. And I, I think that it would be great for all of us. One thing I love about it is they're willing to tackle this, and, and they will be talking from a perspective of what is it like to, to be African-American living in a predominantly white community? What is it like? What are the conversations you have to have as an African-American raising your kids in a predominantly white uh, culture? Uh, those conversations are different than for many of us who grew up as the dominant culture. So I encourage you to go there and, and to learn from them and, and gain understanding and because the best way that we can move forward as Christians really demonstrating what the love of Christ is and what the kingdom of God looks like is to understand each other and hear each other's perspectives. And if you say like, hey, I've, I already really understand this issue well, then you for sure need to go if, if, that's, if that's your thought. So um, I'm really proud of them for tackling that. It's, it's really going to be, I hopefully, uh, really challenging and enlightening and uh, something that can open the door for our congregation even to be a model of what it looks like to walk in reconciliation and love together. So um, that's really what my whole week was about. So I'm excited that they actually came up with this uh, months ago. And, and so it's starting next week. So uh, good for them on that. But that is not what I'm here to talk about this morning. It will probably spill out a little bit of some of the things I learned, but we are going to continue our series called Renovation this morning. And this series is about uh, the stories out of the gospel of how Jesus was shaping the lives of his followers. Again, this week we're going to look into the life of Peter once again. Uh, we've kind of looked at we looked at him last week and a little bit in his life the week before. And the way we began this series was that Jesus is calling this group of people who really were on paper very unqualified to follow him, like you and like me. We are unworthy to stand in the presence of God, and yet He invites us in to the revolution that he 
is leading and says, participate in my story. And then last week, Dale taught and he taught about uh, it, it really to be renovated, to build something new, you need to make sure the foundation is secure. And the foundation we're talking about is who is Jesus? Jesus is God. And, and so we need to build on that foundation of that fundamental truth. And now this week, we're going to continue uh, with that conversation. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 16. We're going to spend a little bit of time there today and uh, as well as some other places. And as you go there, allow me to pray and just open up our time. God, we thank you so much again for, for this morning. I thank you for a great week that I had with brothers and sisters from across the nation who are working hard uh, to really understand how we can do a better job as followers of you, uh, engaging in a culture that is increasingly, seemingly antagonistic. So I'm grateful for that time. But God, I'm also grateful for the opportunity you've given Seacoast Church to be a church in this community that really represents your name, that leads the way in shaping culture and in helping our friends in our community understand that you are a God that is unlike any other. And you've called us to participate in God. So we thank you for this. I pray right now that you teach me as I speak and uh, allow me to uh, process with my brothers and sisters here as we learn what it means to be people renovated by you. So we thank you and give you this time. Amen. So the book of Matthew chapter 16, last week is where uh, Dale taught out of it and, and had this great story where Jesus was hanging out with his disciples and asked them, hey, who do people think I am? And there were some different confessions. And, it, and then it came to Peter and he said, oh, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. In other words, you are God's anointed one who's been sent. And, and, and they had a deep, rich understanding of what that meant to have this anointed one. The anointed one sent by God was one that they believed would, would come and set them free. That would, would, and they had all these kind of understandings that we'll get to in a moment. But Peter says, that's who you are, the son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, or Simon, for understanding this. I'm going to change your name. And, and he then kind of talks about this is the truth in which I will build my ch the church, the truth about who I am. So this week we are in the same story, but we are in chapter 16, but we are now in verse 21. So Peter just had this great revelation, this wonderful moment with Jesus the, the disciples were on the, that mountain in Caesarea Philippi and understood here is a Christ. This is great. And he confirmed it and, and said, this is the new kingdom of God is now at hand. And, and they had this exciting moment and had finished on their last night of their um, spiritual retreat with some great worship and then you know, got on their buses down the mountain. Uh, by the way, Hume Lake's coming up this summer for the students. You go, yeah. I think you can sign up starting next week. You can have one of these moments. But after the bus ride home, Jesus continued this conversation with them about what it means that he is the Messiah, what it means that he is the Christ. And in verse, 20, verse 21, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. He must be killed and raised up on the third day. Now, right there, let's stop right there. Because we've been talking about, and even if you haven't been here, I'll fill you in. But we've been talking a little bit about the context in which this is happening. 
is in a world where the Roman Empire is on their throne and the hope in the Messiah was that when the Messiah comes, God's sent one, that we will be free once and for all from all these oppressors. And it wasn't just Rome. Before the Romans, it was the Greeks. Before the Greeks, it was the Persians. Before the Persians, it was the Assyrians. So they had this long history of oppression and the longings for the Messiah kept increasing and increasing and saying, once and for all, we will be free. So now they're standing in the presence with that Messiah. They've seen signs and wonders that make him say, this is certainly the one sent from God. And, and he said, yes, I am the Christ. Could you imagine the jubilation that would come? from these little Hebrew kids who grew up studying the scriptures, longing for these prophecies and seeing some of them fulfilled and thinking, we are going to be set free any day now. Let's get ready to fight. And he starts explaining to them. And, and, and I wonder if Jesus began with, with the, the passages they loved the most. Maybe talk through Zechariah where it speaks of the Messiah as a king. And he, he addresses some things in, in Isaiah that we see he brings comfort. He brings hope. He'll be rebuilding cities. Your shame will be gone. The Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah talk about there'll be victory, there'll be restoration, enemies defeated. Jerusalem will be a city in which the whole world can look to. That would be a great conversation. And then Jesus somewhere in there turns it and says, yeah, let's look at some more scriptures about me. In Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 7, it says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. The one who announces peace and brings news of happiness and announces salvation. This is great. Listen, lift up your voices, shout joyfully together. You will see with your own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together. So there's just all this stuff that they would think, Ah, this is so amazing. And then Jesus turned the page, I wonder, and we kind of know he does, and he looks in Isaiah 53, or he opens a scroll a little longer. (laughs) And he says, oh, here's a description of the Messiah. He grew up before, uh, like as a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. Then he keeps going. The Messiah was despised, will be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one whom men hide their face from. He was despised and no one esteemed him. Surely our griefs he set before him, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him as stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastening of our well-being upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." Do you see how this conversation just turned? (laughs) I wonder what that was like for these little Hebrew boys growing up. Because that was there. It was right in their, their scrolls. But when they read that, they must have thought, well, not our Messiah. No, we got victory. We have a we have no more shame. We have new hope. Wait, what are you talking about, about being smitten and rejected and pierced through, beaten? What? So Jesus starts expanding on that, we learn in Matthew chapter 16, when he says, I will be handed over. I am going to Jerusalem. I will be crucified or I will be killed. 
And on the third day, I will raise again for you. That must have really kind of was what we call now a buzzkill, wouldn't it have been? (laughs) The great conversations and joy and this this imagination of what would happen was so great. And then he goes, oh yeah, and I'm going to just be absolutely destroyed when I go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed for you. And they would think like, whoa, whoa. And, and Peter, and this is why we love Peter so much, right? Peter's such, he's so great. I love Peter. It says in verse 22 of Matthew 16, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now before we think like he just took him aside and got up in his face and started yelling at him, rebuke can also just be, it's actually, could be a gentle kind of calm, but correction. And notice that he takes him aside. So he's like, Jesus, you know, I didn't want to do this in front of everyone else because I don't want you to look stupid. Um, but we've got to talk a little bit more. So Peter takes him aside in verse 22. And he says, God forbid it, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. In other words, Peter wasn't actually saying the scriptures are wrong. He was saying, no, we've got your back. We, if you are the Messiah and people are going to try to do this to you, don't worry. We've got your back. And all of Galilee is ready to rise up. Everyone wants you to be on your throne. Just wait and see. You don't have to. It's not going to end that way. You might think it will, but that's not how it's going to be. And before you get too judgmental of Peter, have you ever argued with God? <laughs> Have you ever said, God, I don't think you quite understand my prayer. (laughs) I didn't ask for that. (laughs) He's just going with his imperfect set of knowledge and trying to say what he thinks would work better. You and I have done that. Some of you may have done that this morning. (laughs) And then Jesus, in his compassion and love for Peter, looks him in the eye and says, Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> get, behind, get behind me, Satan. For you are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Now again, I, lo- I think that's fun. I think that's a funny thing that he said to him. Get behind me, Satan. Um, I've said it to people, myself, um, and, and it's, it's always enjoyable. It sounds... Um, and and but, but really, it, he wasn't necessarily calling him the devil. The, the word in Hebrew could also just be my adversary. But what he is saying is, get behind me, the one, because you are going against, you are fighting against what I'm trying to say. But catch the second part of this. He says, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but you're setting your mind on man's interests. You see, as we begin this morning, we want to talk about renovation. We need to first begin with this idea that the plans of God are often radically different than what we think should work out. And see, because God is the only one with this very complete view of the world. He's the only one who's omniscient, the only one who's omnipresent, and the only one who's all-powerful. So he has just a different perspective than you do and that I have. It's just the way it is. And and so often what we think will be the way that this should work out differently, he's saying, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. Kind of as we alluded to earlier today, there's always more to the conversation. And until we learn that there's more, sometimes we think, oh, we've got this figured out. 
And God is the only one who has it figured out. And he looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're thinking like a human. Which Peter could have easily said, well, I am, and you made me this way, but, uh, <laughs> but you are thinking like mankind. And it's the same old thing we've seen for thousands of years, Peter. It's you want an army to rise up that's stronger than the other one. And you want to defeat them through force. And now you want the oppressed to become the oppressors. You want the Romans to be out of here and to feel a taste of what you've tasted for all these years. You are thinking like a man. And it's the same system that's always been in place. And how is this working out, Peter? I've got a different plan. And my plan is so different that you can't even grasp it when you're standing at the cross and looking at the God of the all creation crucified. It doesn't make sense. So we have to understand the full story. Anytime we go with incomplete information, we fall short. I remember as a youth pastor for a nice superficial, just fun illustration. Um, when I first got started, I was a junior high director. Yeah, junior high. Um, so I was a junior high director. And in my church, the, the system, the way it worked was we'd have junior high youth group on Wednesday night. And on Thursday morning, I would get a letter from the janitor about everything we did wrong. Um, and that, that was just our norm. That's kind of how it went. And, and it didn't matter. It was like I had the best. I started keeping them because I thought they were so entertaining. And I even had, literally, I had this note one day that the janitor wrote a note and said, um, this, he, he said there was um, a lipstick left in the girl's bathroom and some girl wrote on the mirror. And he was mad about that. So you need to make sure they don't do that. I'm like, I forgot about that rule. And, and, and the thing I love most is the note he wrote to me was with that lipstick that was left in the bathroom. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> so, um, and, and my favorite thing was one day I got this note and it was like the women's bathroom, again, um, was completely destroyed. It was really messy and you just need to do a better job. And it was to my great satisfaction to be able to respond to him. I, it's the only time I ever responded and said, hey, um, junior high group didn't meet last night. <laughs> but you know who did? Women's ministry! <laughs> that, was, that was great, and I loved that. <laughs> but, so, sometimes we have the incomplete information on things like Peter. He just doesn't understand the whole story. And sometimes you just don't look very educated at that point. When we're being renovated, we have to allow and know that God sees a bigger picture of what's happening. The plans of God are just different. And there's going to be times as he's renovating us that we just say, God, I think you're missing something. And he looks at us and says, no, you are. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. So what's the challenge that Jesus enters into then in verse 24? Then Jesus says to his disciples, okay, Peter, okay, let me explain this more. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is there for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? So he enters into this challenge to them of what it looks like to be a follower. What it looks like to be someone who's being renovated and changed by God. He says what it looks like is you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
Now, if you are new to the faith or you're here this morning trying to explore Christianity, you might think that doesn't sound very good. To deny myself and take up the cross. So let's look at this a little bit. Uh, What makes this difficult? First of all, the deny yourself side. I hate that part of it. (laughs) To deny yourself. You know, any of you who have ever had the privilege of getting married or have kids, you learn this. You learn that there's a measure of learning to deny yourself for someone else. I love, we have on Friday nights most often with my family, we do, we call it pizza night. And so we, we eat pizza. And pizza and Mountain Dew, it's, a, it's you know, the, the nectar of the gods. And, um, and so, remember I started in junior high ministry. Some things never change. So, uh, but I don't, it's not Friday night that I love. What I love is Saturday afternoon when there's leftover pizza and there's some sports on. Any time of the year, you can, it might be, I might be watching like two Czechle, uh, people from uh, Czech Republic playing, you know, tennis, but I, it's sports and I'm eating pizza and it's leftover. It's fantastic. So, um, so I love Saturday, but what happened when I had kids and, and not just kids, but boys, only boys is those leftovers just aren't there anymore. <laughs> and I had to order more and more. And there's times so like when we're eating on Friday night, I'm looking at how much they're eating. I'm thinking, I got to somehow stop them. And, and like, I'll go in the kitchen where the pizza boxes are, and I'll like pack them up early and be like, okay, and put them away. They're like, Dad, where the pizza? Oh, I thought you were done. I'm like, I got one pizza. I just started. I'm like, oh. Because, you know why? Because I want that pizza the next day. And, and yes, okay, maybe I've hidden a few pieces before. But, <laughs> and again, okay, that's a very superficial example, but denying yourself is learning that it's not just about going without something that I want but it's about being willing to allow someone else to have something that they want. So it's really not necessarily that I'm denying and never have anything for myself, but it's I'm thinking of others. So Jesus begins and says, you know, to follow me, you need to learn to deny yourself. You need to learn the one basic principle that this life is not just about you. And then he gets into this thing called take up your cross and follow me. Now when Jesus said take up your cross... I want you to really recognize something here. He has not yet died on the cross. See, when we say take up your cross, usually it's even a common phrase in in, uh, literature to this day. When we say that, it comes with a lot of understanding that Jesus went, carried a cross, and died on the cross. But when he said it to his disciples, he had not yet done that. So there's two things happening here. One, he was predicting the fact that he would face death on a cross. But the second is this, we need to understand is, what is taking up your cross? See, at the time of Jesus, it was, there was an understanding of people could be crucified on a cross. It wasn't a new idea. Jesus and the two rebels next to him were not the only ones to ever die on a cross. In fact, Roman historians and Jewish historians and and actually even in the Greek system, we see that crucifixions were commonplace sometimes. But they were not commonplace for Roman citizens. We know of thousands of people who have been crucified on crosses. But the cross was reserved for the lower class, but in particular for enemies of the state. See, you could be killed for a lot of reasons, but if you were the enemy of the state, you'd be killed on a cross. And you'd be left there 
And the point was that everyone who would see you would remember, I do not want to die that way. So it was Rome's way of saying, if you follow the ways of this person and rebel against us and declare a kingdom other than ours, this will happen to you. (laughs) Cicero a Roman orator said this when he described crucifixion. He said it's the most cruel and disgusting punishment. He said that the very mention of a cross should be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. He says no. No one wants to be crucified on a cross. But the cross was meant for enemies of the state of Rome. So Jesus speaking to him says, you want to be my follower, you have to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. He wasn't saying, oh, you're going to bear some burdens and life might be hard. He's saying you need to be willing to declare that there is a different kingdom at hand. And the kingdom of the world that you live in is not the one that guides the way you are to live. (laughs) For us today, it probably does not mean that any of us will hang on the cross. But it's saying that you you have to be willing to declare that I am king. And what's going to result here in first century is I will die on a cross. And we believe that 10 of the first 12 disciples all died a martyr's death. Some of them on crosses. Because they were declaring that Jesus Christ is king. And his kingdom is at hand. And Caesar is not king. He is not the son of God. Jesus is. And it resulted in their death. So taking up your cross today is living in a way that declares that Jesus Christ is the king of your life. And not the kingdoms of this world. So what does that look like? What does that look like for us? Willing to live, declare that Jesus is king. What does that look like? How about a radical form of forgiveness? Does the kingdom of our world really embrace that? Sometimes. How about dropping labels that we put on others and seeing them as God's creation? For loving them as God's creation. What about something as simple as declaring that Jesus is king is meaning getting over yourself and quit trying to live to impress everyone and making them think that you have some worth in what you have to offer. And just saying, God, let me be and live in your presence. And quit striving over hoping that everyone can say, oh, you are great because of whatever. How about inconveniencing yourself for someone else? Does the kingdom of this world declare that the way to live is to inconvenience yourself for the sake of someone else? How often do you see that? How often do you see someone on the side of the road who needs, you know, they're pushing their car and you're like, oh, you know, I'd help, but I'm already in this lane. It's going to be hard to get over there. I used to always... Uh, and, and when I say used to always, I, because this last week I drove by someone who was pushing their car and I was like, oh, I'm in the wrong lane, I can't do it. And if by the time I turn around, they'll probably already be in San Diego. But the kingdom of my God would say, you know what, Ryan, you're really not that important. But right now that person is. How about kingdom of uh, uh, God's kingdom is respecting others as, God crea- as God's creation so we don't exploit them in the name of some sort of sexual pleasure. 
That we see them not, not just as people that is maybe someone else's daughter, but we see them as people that are someone. And we say, no, the kingdom of God means that I respect them so much as God's creation that I will not give in. I will not play the game of our world that says that people are just things. Do I have a few more punches to throw? Yeah, let's see. <laughs> Declaring the kingdom of God's at hand means that you're not given allegiance to the ways of this earthly kingdom. Parents, it means that we take our kids off the throne and we say that actually God belongs there. And maybe for some of us who say, hey, we're, we're just too busy. We can't do other things with our kids or, or you know, because I'm, I'm just running constantly from one thing to the other so I can't help out uh, when our children's ministry goes to the bread of life because we just have so much going on. Well, maybe you need to get all that stuff that's going on off the throne every once in a while. And this is for me because I'm a parent with three kids and I'm busy. (laughs) Maybe the kingdom of God means that instead of worrying so much about how successful my kids are going to be, so I fight and I fight and I fight to make sure they have the best of everything, that sometimes I just sit in their presence and say, the gift for you today is that I'm present with you and I love you. Because your God is a God who loves. And you just need to sometimes know that it's okay. We can go get some frozen yogurt and just be. And we're going to skip your piano lessons today. Because I want to hang out with you. You might not be as good as someone else, but I really don't care. Because the kingdom of God says you are so important. That I need to just let you know that God loves you. Who else wants to get hit? Let's see. Um, Empty nesters. <laughs> and see, I already picked on myself. What kingdom do you live for? Hey, I've already raised my kids. I have my free time. I have my money. I paid my dues. I don't need to help out. Yeah, I love kids, but I don't need to help out and help the new generation. I'm busy. I've been there, done that. The kingdom of the world says I've earned this for myself does God's kingdom say if you have a heart and a gift to love our children we need people who love our children and our youth and to be there with them and let them know that there's a generation of kids who can grow up feeling that God loves them and is passionate for them yes it might inconvenience you sorry that's the kingdom of the world not the kingdom of God young adults I haven't thrown anything at you yet but I'm running out of time you guys are so lucky I'm going to write a blog post this week for you. Um, All kinds of things, what it means to take up our cross. Taking up our cross means that we declare that Jesus Christ is king and the world's patterns are not what governs us. That's what it means. Can we be a church that does that? I have a friend who works in a ministry called Deaf Teen Quest. It's through YFC, but he works with deaf teenagers. I didn't even know this was a thing until he started doing it. Apparently there's this whole subculture that I was so ignorant of that feels rejected and displaced. They don't even fit in in their own country among their own people. He's given his life for them. He's been raising money the last 20 years to give to them and has never had much. We support them monthly, but I I often look at him and think, I don't know how you do this. You should just get a job that pays more. It'd be easier. But he says, no, these kids need someone who fights for them and loves them. I had a friend who 
uh, spent his whole life teaching in inner city Compton. He lived out in the suburbs, but every day he went in and said, those kids need people who love them. And he gave his whole career serving the inner city youth all the way through retirement because he said they need someone to teach them how to, uh, about math, and I want to be that one. The kingdom of God, that's what it is to take up your cross. There's a pastor at my parents' church who is an uh, empty nester, and they're passionate, passionate, passionate about being people who, who take care of the orphans and the widows in, in the world. And, and so they, they talk about, hey, if you have the capacity, we need to invest in foster care and all kinds of things. And one day God said, hey, why don't you do something about it? So at age, I think it was like 55 or something, he and his wife adopted a kid because they said this person needed someone. Five years later, they said, we've got to do more, and they adopted another one. I look at them, and I think, but you're so close to freedom. <laughs> you're so close. Why would you do that? And he said, because the kingdom of God isn't really about my freedom. It's about those kids. Hmm. We're people who are renovated. It begins by our just saying, God, we want your kingdom in our lives. And then do what you got to do. Do what you got to do. So how do we respond? I, I know this is a lot to think about, by the way. <laughs> and I know for some of you, you're going to leave here and say, I can't adopt right now. I can't do this right now. And, and some of that's going to be very, very legit. And we all actually have different callings and we, we all have different things that God would call us to. But I do want you to leave here in process and say, God, how can I declare that you are king in my life? What is the cross I need to take up that says the kingdom of the world is not what I pay my allegiance to? And know that as you leave and as you process this and enter in, we will have a lot of stumblings along the way. It's just the way it is. You're going to have times when you go and you think, well, I don't think I did that right. Yeah. We're going to keep studying the disciples' life to give us plenty of encouragement. <laughs> they were idiots. <laughs> That's why I love them so much. I feel like I'm very closely related. <laughs> but they went for it. And one thing we can really be encouraged by, here's Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, in verses 1 through 3, it says this. It says, Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and he was just talking about all this history of followers of Jesus who have tried to follow him. Which, by the way, if you really want to understand those verses, read all of Hebrews 11, and you will find people who didn't do it very well sometimes. Some were cut in half. <laughs> I love that. Some were cut in half. Some lost their lives. Some did great things for the kingdom. <laughs> but since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, cheering for us, journeying with us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with the endurance the race that's set before us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. He despising the shame, He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hey, just take heart to know that you're part of a 
large global community of Christians who are trying to declare that Jesus Christ is king. And we are not alone on this. And I want you to really see verse 2. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of our faith, the one who creates it, who's writing it, who's, who's calling us into it. But get the next word, the perfecter of our faith. If Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, guess what that means that you are not? You are not the perfecter of the faith, and you are not perfect either. But that means you don't have to be the perfecter of your faith. You don't have to be. Sir Ian Thomas, a great evangelist, once wrote, he said this, As a young evangelist, my love and enthusiasm for Christ as my Savior kept me very, very busy until out of sheer frustration I finally came to the point of just quitting. That was a turning point which transformed my Christian life. In my despair, I discovered that the Lord Jesus gave himself for me so that risen from the dead, he may give himself to me, he who is the Christian life. Instead of pleading for help, I began to thank him for all that he wanted me to be, sharing his life with me every moment of every day. I learned to say, Lord Jesus, I can't, but you never said I could because you can. And you always said you would. This is all I need to know. From that moment, life became an adventure that God always intended it to be. You see, Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. When we just journey, we can trust that Jesus is the one who stands in the gap and says, no, you aren't going to get this right. But I never said you would. I already did. Focus on me and move forward. With, take up the cross that I call you Jesus is not simply the example in our lives. He is the perfecter of our lives. So when we hear him say, lose your life, as we end here, he's referring to the desire to give all of us all that we need. The freedom to give up our life and to follow Jesus is where we find hope. As we end here this morning, we invite the worship team to come up. And I just want to take a moment for us to just sit and to kind of think And again, I know this is a lot. (laughs) But the one thing I don't want us to do is to think and process and then to leave and say, that was nice. Or that was really not nice. Thanks, Ryan. (laughs) And then just to go in the same kingdom that you've been striving for for so long and finding that it's just not leading to anywhere. Can we go from here and say, Jesus... We are a church of people who want to declare that you are king on your throne. I believe when we do that, our city will transform because they will see something different than they have seen from his followers. I believe lives will be changed when they look at us and say, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. It's the most compelling thing in the world, I promise you. So let's take a moment to just Let the words sink in a little bit. But I also want you to let something else sink in. And that's Jesus is the perfecter of your faith. The the death on the cross and the resurrection that conquered the grave said, I've given you all you need. I'm already all you need. And let us be a church that says, we'll take up our cross knowing that Jesus already paved the way. And he is all we need. So let's bow our heads.
I'm going to give you a few seconds here of awkward, (laughs) quiet prayer time. For you just to say whatever you need to say to Jesus in your own heart. Or maybe to just listen. Or maybe the Spirit is nudging you in some way. God, as we sit this morning hearing these challenging words, maybe the most challenging words that you spoke in all of Scripture, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, our instruments of torture and death that are reserved for those who follow a different king and to follow you. God, would you this morning speak to our hearts? For some of us, it's conviction. For some of us, maybe it's encouragement. For some of us, it's motivation. For some of us this morning, God, maybe it's just your grace spoken into our lives and say, it's okay. Let's journey from here. God, let us be people who remember that this is all centered on you. It's really not about our kingdom. It's not about the kingdom of Seacoast and what we can become. So God, as we think of you and the work you did on your cross, let us be people who are willing to join with you and participate with you. To say, not to us, God, but to your kingdom. Not our lives, but yours. Can we lose the life that we think we need to have to gain the one that is so much greater? Continue to move in this place now, Lord, as we turn our hearts and and this time in worship of you.